Hey there, I'm Daphna Chazen, registered dietitian and weight loss coach, and you're listening to the Down to Earth PCOS Nutrition Podcast, a place for practical advice for women looking to balance their hormones, ditch dieting, and discover mindset shifts that will keep you motivated and empowered on your healthy eating journey. Are you ready to get started? Well, hey there, and welcome back to the Down to Earth PCOS Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Daphna Chazen, and today I have a wonderful guest on the show. Her name is Stephanie Paver. She is an integrative and functional registered dietitian nutritionist in virtual private practice. Stephanie specializes in women's health, and her mission is to educate women about female hormone health and provide non-pharmaceutical evidence-based solutions to healing. Specifically, Stephanie helps women who have struggled for years with PCOS to discover the healthy eating plan that works for them. And she teaches women how to leverage other lifestyle modalities in an easy to implement format. And we're going to dive right into this in the episode and talk about all the wonderful things that she is doing. Stephanie is also a board certified specialist in oncology nutrition and a certified nutrition support clinician. She's also Um, holding a certificate of training in adult weight management, and she's pursuing a certification in integrative and functional nutrition. So this girl knows what she's doing and she's super busy. Stephanie and I connected on social media and I invited her to talk about her nutritional approach to PCOS. We also spoke about fertility and gut health, among other things. So it's a great episode and I know you're going to find tons of value in it. So let's dive right in. Hey there, Stephanie. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited that you're here today. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So you and I connected on Instagram, which is where we found each other. And we both work with women with PCOS. Your specialty is a little bit different than mine. And you're definitely more of an expert in fertility and gut health. So this is why I wanted to bring you onto the show so you can share some of that knowledge. So let's get started by um, telling you, you telling us a little bit about yourself um, and the type of clients that you work with. All right. Well, so my mission is to educate women on female hormones and reproductive health and provide non-pharmaceutical solutions to healing. So that's the first thing I want people to know about me. I am a registered dietitian. I do practice integrative and functional nutrition. I've been in practice um, as a dietitian for almost 12 years, and I have, um, so my my background is very traditional, so I have an undergraduate degree in dietetics, and then I have a master's in nutrition. I also have some kind of specialty certification, so the first part of my career, I worked in clinical, so... um, you know, really seeing a lot of acute and chronic illness. I've worked with um, mostly oncology. So I have an oncology certification, as well as I'm certified in nutrition support, which is really an ability. It's kind of, I call it like an advanced nutrition kind of credentialing in which you're really helping very sick people who need alternate forms of, of nutrition. So that's a little bit about my background. I'm currently working in women's health, and I specialize in PCOS. And to your point, yes, I am really working with women who are either trying to conceive, 
they have maybe had miscarriages, so they've been on the journey. And then I also work with women who um, they have been told by their doctor that conception might be difficult for you. And so they want to get ahead of it and they want to just kind of manage the PCOS now so that conception is a reality in the future. Yeah. So I think that's a really important point. It's really wise to start early before you're even thinking about having a baby to prime your body for conceiving naturally and and quickly whenever you're ready. So that's a really good point. Like it doesn't start when you're ready to have a baby. Correct. Exactly. And what kind of made you go and focus on PCOS? So my personal story, the kind of first personal incident, I call it, that I had was when I was in my 20s and I stopped birth control. So I'd only been on it for a few years, was never like really a big fan of it. But anyway, went on it for a few years, came off of it, and I had what we would now call secondary amenorrhea. So that's a technical term. Basically, I stopped getting a period after I stopped birth control. And I was very confused and I was concerned because as a woman, you're like, well, that's not normal. I'm not pregnant. Um, What's going on? And so at that time, I was, you know, working in a hospital setting. I was working alongside a lot of physicians. I had relationships with them. And so I was asking, well, in fact, I I was working in reproductive oncology. So I was working with a doctor who did all women's reproductive health. And so I asked him, like, hey, I'm not getting a period. Like, should I be concerned? What's going on? And he he was kind of nonchalant about it. And it was just kind of like, no, it's fine. Not a big deal. And and maybe it's not, but I it wasn't the answer that I was looking for because I was concerned. And so in this kind of quest to figure things out, I was also having other issues. So I started gaining weight. I was having really bad bloating. I was just not well. And so I finally went to see an naturopathic doctor and she had kind of suspected, she had thrown out the word, oh, it sounds like you might have PCOS. So she started the workup. I never went back to her, but it really, that was really what catapulted me into, oh my gosh, like I don't even know anything about my body. I don't know how it works. I don't understand the environmental influences on my hormones. And I, so that was kind of the first thing that really gave me this awareness of I'm so undereducated. And then, you know, after I started my private practice, I kind of serendipitously started getting calls and started working with women with PCOS. And what was really apparent to me was that there was a huge gap in the way that these women were treated and given resources. So a good, really good example that I think what that I want to go over that I think every one of your listeners can relate to is I had a patient, a 26 year old come to me, she had PCOS, she couldn't lose weight. And her doctor told her to consume a thousand calories, go on a thousand calorie diet. And in addition, she was working out six days a week. Now, as dietitians, we know that equation just doesn't, that's just not going to work anyway. But then when you have PCOS and the complexity of the hormonal imbalances, now you're really up against something. And so I started really, you know, you get, there's this trend. You So you start working with these people and it's like the same trend. And so it really opened my eyes to, there's a huge gap here and a huge opportunity to be a, a beacon, to be a source of information, to be someone who really understands this condition and can help women 
not only compassionately, but also to give them a roadmap to success that actually that works, you know? And so that's really what kind of led me into um, specializing in this area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this experience of being dismissed by physicians or yes. getting some, you know, quote unquote, helpful tips that send you down a, a, an even worse path or destroy your body is yes. such a common experience for women with PCOS. So I think that you have such an advantage that you've had this experience personally and you can really, you know, relate um, and really help these women from a pretty dark place sometimes. Mm-hmm. So is mm-hmm. that what guides your nutritional philosophy? Can you tell me a little bit about how you see nutrition? Because I'm always curious what other dietitians, yeah. um, you know, how they treat or what their philosophy is around yeah. nutrition and food. Yeah, yeah, good point. So, so okay, I'm going to go into a little bit of detail. So my philosophy is, you know, whole foods, plant-based, and I think most of us really agree on that. However, where I kind of diverge from what I think is a collective dietitian mind is that I don't believe all foods fit all the time. And I'm going to tell you why. So my story is that again, when I was in my twenties, I was having all kinds of pains. I was having tendonitis, bilateral epicondylitis, which is tennis elbow. So I was having all these itises and itis is the a suffix that means inflammation. So it was just a general term that I was having inflammation, right? I had this really kind of kooky, like, cyst in my wrist. I forget the name of the, the cyst, but there's like a huge cyst. I was seeing this surgeon. He was going to operate on my, my wrist and I was wearing this wrist brace and I was getting bilateral MRIs for my knees because my knees were hurting. It was just, it was, it, it was ridiculous. And for being young and active and like, you know, as a dietitian, you know, relatively healthy, like I shouldn't have been dealing with those issues. Right. So anyway, the long, the long story short is that I did modify my diet. So I cut out dairy and in doing so, my wrist pain went away. My tendonitis went away. My, my elbow pain went away. My knee pain went away. And that was really the first, I would say, realization because as dietitians, we're not really taught that certain foods can affect the, you know, the body systemically. We're not taught this. And so that was my first really personal realization that food, you know, we're taught dairy is great. You should, it's part of a diet, lots of calcium, like you need dairy, all this. And that's really when I broke away from that mentality. Cause I'm like, well, wait a second. This is like, look at all of the issues I'm having. And honestly, like I was waking up every day with like phlegm and swollen lymph nodes. It, it was really not good. And I was always constantly, um, feeling like I was on the verge of getting sick. I thought something was wrong with me. And, and anyway, so the dairy piece really played into it a lot for me. So I took it out, my stuff, my issues went away. And so the philosophy I hold today is that diet is like a fingerprint. It's very unique to the individual. And I will tell you that although when we speak about PCOS, a lot of times we can kind of do this broad strokes of like, dairy's not good for PCOS or whatever. Really, it's super it's super individual. I have some patients who don't tolerate legumes. I have some patients who don't do well on soy. I have some patients who don't do well on dairy. And so it's really a matter of having the awareness of what are you eating and how is that translating into a a symptom or manifestation. And then determining 
that it is that thing. So how do you systematically go about taking something out of your diet and then reintroducing it to see if you can get a reproducible result, right? And that's really what I was seeing when I was taking dairy out and then adding it back in, you know, my cysts would come back on my wrist and then my joint pain would start again, you know? And so it was like, it took me years really to do this experiment. And so, and and not, it's not just dairy. I have some issues with almonds. There's other foods that are kind of random, but the point being is that this is how I approach all of my patients. It's really figuring out what they could be eating that could be causing issues. And then once we have the information, it's not a matter of this kind of sentencing where it's like, oh, you can, you know, never have dairy and gluten again. It becomes more of an informed decision. It's a value-based decision that's connected to action and outcome. So you know going into, oh, I'm going out for a birthday dinner and I'm going to eat cake. Well, that's great. Go for it. Have fun. Enjoy it. But don't pretend like you're not going to know that you might have symptoms from the egg in the cake or whatever it is, you know? So, so I really find that most it. women with PCOS have some sensitivities. I do. I do. What do you, so what do you find? I'm curious. I do too. Um, but, and it, it is true that it's not really universal. Like everyone will have their own set of, of reactions to certain foods, whether it be in something that you see or don't see, right? So it could yes. be things like acne or hair loss. And it could also be things like anxiety and inflammation that you can't really pinpoint at that second, but definitely a lot of issues with inflammation. So we know that acne is related to, you know, a lot of people think it's a skin condition. It's really not. It's really something that stems from inflammation in the body, pain, joint pain, and then mood disorders for sure. So do you do it mostly through trial and error or do you also combine testing to find out what what exactly is causing the issue? Great question. So I am really a fan of just doing trial and error. I look at elimination because I have my, so one of the tips, one of like my biggest tips for people is you need to have the data. You need to have the information. So journal, track it. You need to write things down. You need to be able to connect those dots and understand the trends. And so I find that because, you know, with like IgG testing, some of these gut testing, um, they're just not totally reliable. So my preferred method is to really gather the data and be the detective and help the patient figure it out, take things out and then add it back in because that way then they can be confirmed. And so the other thing that that teaches us is that there can be a threshold effect. So just because I have an issue with dairy, I might still be able to have, you know, cheese now and then and not have an issue. But if I buy cheese and start eating it every day for the next week, well, now I'm going to have some issues. So there is this idea of a threshold. So how much can you have for how long until you start seeing these symptoms again? Mm-hmm. And can you talk a little bit about how these sensitivities could impact the gut? Like how would that come into play for someone? So what I find is usually there's a direct relationship. So if somebody has a gut issue, we could usually tie that back to something they're eating in many cases, in many cases. So for example, I have patients in, you know, the bloating, the constipation, this is very common with PCOS. And one of my first suspicions, as I'm sure yours is, is always dairy because dairy can be very constipating for people. It can cause bloating. Um, Gluten could also, you know, there's certain other things. And so usually if there is a gut 
issue, I'm kind of looking through that lens based on my experience, based on what I know about how food um, sensitivities can cause gut issues. And then I'm trying to start an elimination from there. Like, hey, it looks like you're eating a lot of dairy. This could really be problematic. You know, do you, how do you feel about cutting it out for a little bit? Um, so does that answer your question? Yeah. So w- if there's a gut issue, would you say it's usually something that is symptomatic or it could be, you know, someone having a, an impaired gut without really experiencing um, digestive issues necessarily? Yeah, that's a good question. Because I find that sometimes, you know, there are things that are, you know, someone's gut would be working okay, or maybe they think it's normal. Um, but then other things are not as, um, you know, as healthy, um, again, like skin or, or, um, mental health or, um, you know, aches and pains, things like that. And, um, working on the gut can help with those things as well. Correct. I agree with that. I think that if there is a systemic, when I say systemic, I mean like whole body or um, if there's something happening outside of the intestines, the tract. So it's like, say for headaches, for example, that's a good one. Um, if somebody's having headaches, if somebody is having joint pain, the acne, um, anxiety, I always teach people about the gut brain connection. And so, yes, it, but the thing is, so so I guess to your point, you know, yes, you can have some of these other issues without necessarily having an immediate gut reaction. Yes, that's true. But in a lot of cases, I also find that there is some level of disordered gut function. So maybe it's a little bit of constipation. Maybe it's a little bit of bloating. It's not blatant. It's not maybe the most severe thing, but there's usually some level of gut issue. Um, but yeah, I'm always, and that's really where I always start with people. I'm always analyzing gut health asking what it looks like, how many times a day, is it formed, is it satisfying, right? So gathering all of these characteristics about the bowel movement experience, and then from there educating, what does abnormal bowel movement, you know, look like, feel like, and then from there really gathering the data around what are you eating? And then not only that, which I'm kind of jumping, but yes, diet is going to be one of the most critical um uh, pillars, I call it a pillar at the outset, but other things can affect it, right? What's your stress level? Are you being able to connect that when you have higher levels of stress, you have uh, bloating or you have diarrhea, or maybe you don't have a bowel movement? Are you able to, you know, connect? I have a lot of people who are dialing into this is basic, but just hydration. Like, oh, I notice that when I don't drink enough water, it is harder for me to go. So it's really the, it, it's the awareness. It's having the data and having the awareness. It's teaching people how to listen to their bodies, how to understand, how to interpret the signs and the symptoms. And you touched a little bit about the gut-brain connection, which I think is so interesting. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yes. To get people all on the same page. Yeah. So really quickly, the, the gastrointestinal tract is comprised of trillions of microorganisms. So bacteria, yeast, you know, parasites, etc. And these, this ecosystem of organisms really is beneficial for human health and well-being. So these organisms are going to do a lot of functions, one of which is immunity, um, but they also help us to break down our food and to make certain vitamins, etc. And so the interesting thing is that when there is gut dysfunction, or I could say it another way, when there's a disruption 
in the ecosystem, in the gut, that can then lead to um, other issues. So sequelae, clinical sequelae, so other issues. And sometimes that can be um, depression, anxiety, mood disorders, issues with sleeping. So, so one, of the things, one of the things I like to um, educate people on is that the majority of serotonin is made in our gut. And that's because there's these certain specialized enterocytes, so intestinal cells that are responsible for making serotonin. And that is going to actually directly impact someone's mood, right? So serotonin is your happy hormone. And it's also going to impact someone's sleep because serotonin is a precursor to melatonin and that's your sleep hormone. And so if you don't have a healthy gut microbiome, a healthy gastrointestinal tract, you can get these manifestations of mood disorders. So, and it's also important to know that what's happening in the gut is being um, directed to the brain. And then what's happening in the brain is also being connected to the gut. And so there is this, what's called the enteric nervous system that is connecting all of these signals. So our gut, our gut, it's, it, we have a brain. It's a gut brain, right? And and the, the microbiome brain, yeah. yeah. And the microbiome is really speaking to the brain and vice versa. So we have to respect it, and we also have to make sure it's in good working condition. Yeah, yeah. And I think working with someone who understands this is so important because we can't ignore. You know, a lot of times people put so many band aids on with the diet. And they're being random about it, right? So they're eliminating this and they're eliminating that. And they're not even sure what's working because they're eliminating so many things at once. And then they don't even know in what order to bring them back. So working with someone who understands this and looks at the whole person, not just at your weight, not just at your symptoms, but everything that's going on um, emotionally and physically is super important. So with that, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about fertility because okay. that's something that so many women with PCOS seek to adopt a healthy lifestyle. So like you touched on in the beginning, you know, women should really be constantly preparing for um, the time if they want to have children, of course, and if they don't, you know, that's a choice that everyone can make for themselves. But I think that if any of my listeners are looking to optimize their uh, fertility health, I think you can offer a lot of different you know, pieces of advice and your perspective on what are some of the big picture things someone should be looking at when they're looking to prepare for conception or they're already ready to conceive right now if they have PCOS? Sure. So with PCOS and fertility, the number one kind of big picture is get the PCOS under control. So it is going to be really, you can't circumvent the hormonal imbalances of PCOS. You you have to manage the PCOS itself. So if you are symptomatic with PCOS, and of course, you know, that can be a myriad of things, um, but but one of the biggies is anovulation, irregular cycles. So certainly, you know, really addressing that, getting the data. So, So I apply the same kind of framework to the fertility PCOS patients as I do to all PCOS patients. So first we need to fix things, if you will. We need to dial in on the diet. We need to dial in on the lifestyle. We need to find the way of eating and living that's going to help you thrive and feel healthy and, and be healed. And then once we do that, a big piece of that picture or that, that puzzle is teaching women about the menstrual cycle. 
So what are the signs and symptoms of normal menstruation? Are you having PMS? What does that look like? How do you fix it? Are you ovulating? So for example, of course, basal body temperature, um, tracking your temps is going to be one of the, you know, the way or one of the best ways to determine if you're ovulating. I have women who are using a combination of techniques. So they're doing the OPK, which is ovulation predictor kit. That's looking at your LH surge. And then from there, you have to know your temps. So if your temp goes up and stays up, then from there, you know, you've ovulated. So by, by gathering this data, we start to learn more about our cycles. We start to learn about what is the body telling us. And so really starting to put all of those pieces together, it, it's, an, it's essential when women are wanting to get pregnant or just learn um, how to heal so that they can get pregnant in the future. And then other things that I'm trying to align them with um, that really, you know, fertility is a big issue. Um, conception is a big issue. So if a patient has underlying, I guess you could call it emotional or psychological, um, trauma is kind of a strong word, but if there's unresolved stuff that needs, and I see this a lot with PCOS, that needs to be resolved. And sometimes, yes, I can have conversations around it, but I'm not the per I'm not the therapist. I'm not the person. So a lot of times I am referring people to therapy. Um, in terms of acu uh, in terms of other modalities, I use acupuncture a lot. So I'm referring women to acupuncturists so that because that's another way of healing. And so I'm really using multiple modalities to get people in a space of being ready for conception. And then one more thing I want to say about that is kind of high level is that I'm encouraging women to work with their docs. And I'm also, you know, being that advocate and that voice for them. So when we want to confirm if someone's ovulating, and that's really the big piece with PCOS and fertility, we're talking to the doctors, maybe getting a follow-up ultrasound. So for a lot of the women who have had, you know, the quote unquote polycystic ovaries, let's check things out see if it, that's resolved. And all, all of my patients that have worked with me who have had polycystic ovaries, all of their you know, polycystic ovaries have resolved. Um, but we don't know that unless we get the testing. And then the other piece of it is at, ask the doctor, can we get a mid-luteal phase progesterone? Okay. That's a confirmation that you've ovulated. So by being able to get the data, I think women are learning about their bodies and they're starting to understand you know, what um, it takes and what it means to really have high chances of conception. Regarding nutrition, do you find that it's very individualized or are there certain nutrition kind of um, basic things that every person who's looking to optimize fertility is should be focusing on? I mean, I know that, you know, you recently did a great Instagram yeah. live all about this. So maybe you can share some yeah. of the tips that you shared there. I know that plan, you know, having a plan forward plan yeah. is very important. So really what it boils down to is once you've dialed in. So again, we can't skip those first steps of PCOS management. And a big part of that is figuring out the diet, which we talked at the beginning. It's very individual for everybody. And then from there, it becomes a matter of kind of looking at specific nutrients. And so we know that, for example, iron is a very, and I posted on this, iron is essential for fertility. So not only looking at, are you getting enough from your diet, which women need 18 milligrams a day, which can be tough to get, but then also what's your blood level? So trying to work with the doctor to understand, 
are your fair tint, your iron stores normal enough? You know, do they meet that cutoff for what we need them to be for fertility? So after somebody has dialed it on their diet, I'm kind of getting granular in terms of specific nutrients. So for example, we know people need a high level of choline. So can we get that through diet? If not, we need to supplement. We are working on, I mentioned iron, iodine is another one. So I'm really making sure, and in a lot of the time, this is coming down to the right supplementation. So for women with fertility, we've been, we're going to already have kind of figured out the diet piece together. And then from there, it's really honing in on the, new, the specific nutrients that we know are essential for fertility. So you would kind of build a supplement regimen based on where the person is maybe lacking with their actual food. Because I know as dietitians, we want to get all the nutrients should come from food, but realistically, that's not possible for everyone uh, because of food preferences or access to food or food, you know, um, intolerances even maybe. So um, is that how you go about building a supplement regimen, kind of looking at where they need to up the intake of specific nutrients? I do. I'm also looking at, you know, the, the priority. So right now we're, we're specifically talking about fertility. And so, you know, I might be looking at um, gaps in the diet, but I'm also, I might be looking at what do you need for egg health or follicle health. And so from that standpoint, I might be more selective around things like coenzyme Q10, which has been, you know, studied. We might be looking at, um, certain types of antioxidant nutrients, potentially vitamin E, potentially um, vitamin C, almost always. So again, it depends on the person. It depends on the priority. And it also depends on what else they kind of have going on that they're managing. Um, And then also, which I'm sure you're going to get into this, but it also depends on what objective data I have. So if I'm able to do a, a nutrient test on them, which is really looking at these the status of these antioxidant nutrients, and it looks at DNA damage, then from there, we can get very personalized because now we have this individual's, you know, unique, you know, data set on what's going on in their body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about testing a little bit. Can you tell me what are some of the tests that you like to use and has been, have been effective for your clients? Sure. So I, and I, this has changed a little bit over the last few years. So micronutrient testing is one that has been a go-to for me. I've kind of switched labs recently. So right now I'm use, I'm utilizing the Genova Diagnostics Nutra Eval. I really like that one. I just did it myself. Um, I, took, I had my kit, so I finally finished it. And so the Nutra Eval is a very comprehensive look at somebody's antioxidant nutrient levels, their amino acids, uh, fatty acids. So looking at levels of like omega-3s and omega-6s and omega-9s. And then it's also looking at oxidative stress, which means, um, is there a lot of inflammation? Does somebody have enough, again, of these antioxidant nutrients? And then also, is their DNA being damaged? So we know that DNA damage is a risk factor for infertility, really quite frankly. And so by looking at all of this stuff, we can really, again, hone in and dial in on what a person needs. What kind of test is it? Oh, yes. Thank you. I was going to say that. Uh, It's a combination of blood and urine. Okay. And can people do that at home? 
Yeah. Uh, oh, so right. I, when I did mine recently, I actually had the phlebotomist come to me. So, so people generally have a choice. The urine's at home, and then you can either go into a clinic or have the phlebotomist come to you. But we're still during COVID-19. So I, I assume that, you know, you would want someone to come to your house or yeah. wait it out a little. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So that could be kind of self-administered um, almost. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So then you get a report with the detailed results of all the things that you just listed. And then that's what you use to base the nutrition prescription on, right? Correct. Okay, Correct. great. What about, um, do you use any gut protocol, like any gut testing um, or? So any, I, um, I, yeah, so I don't use a ton of gut testing, but I do have the option as well. I've, I've utilized the genome, so same uh company, Genova Diagnostics, they have a comprehensive stool effects is what it's called. And so I definitely have the option of using that. And I'll be honest with you, I don't use it on a ton of my PCOS patients, just because I feel like we can do a lot through just diet modification. And I'm also, and also just through me understanding their symptoms. So I can, I get a kind of a general sense, just through being in practice and, you know, doing this is that I get a sense of somebody, maybe, um, maybe they're not digesting fat and they might need a little bit of bile support, or if they have gastritis or some kind of, and maybe not gastritis is the right word. If they are maybe not digesting properly, um, or they have a sluggish digestion, I might recommend digestive enzymes. And then for a lot of my PCOS patients, fiber is going to be one of the most um, effective uh, interventions. And so, so I'm generally not utilizing the stool testing for all. Yeah, it's an option if we need to. And I really reserve it. Let me just say I reserve it for the patients who have the longstanding history of gut issues. We start making changes and we're just, it's, changes aren't responding or we just can't figure it out. Those are the people that I do the testing. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you really customize your plans based on the person's symptoms, their history, what they're currently eating. And then you use the testing to further, further dial in their nutrition plan. Um, And I assume that, you know, gives amazing results to people. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about some of your clients? What kind of things do you find um, have been improving quickly or things that you find um, are, you know, that diet can really help with that maybe have surprised you? (laughs) Because I know for me, things, you know, when I first started practicing and certainly helping women with PCOS, um, I think the inflammation piece is one that is... um, very, very interesting because it's not necessarily digestive improvements or weight loss or, you know, reducing your cholesterol. But when you talk about things like migraines and mood and pain, we as dietitians are not necessarily trained, like you said earlier, to think about food as something that helps with that. Has that been your experience? 100%. So in fact, if somebody is having those kind of issues, I mean, one the and food is number one. Like that's going to be one of the most impactful and most important interventions or changes to make. So I would say that some things that have really surprised me and kind of some specific patient issues. Honestly, I I think I've been just most surprised to hear people say I feel like a whole new person. Yes, I agree. I, I and I'm like, 
okay, like, okay, <laughs> you know, so energy levels improve, yeah, which we all know. Um, of course, the ball movements become more satisfying, there's less bloating, there's no bloating, because you figure out what's causing it, and you stop eating it. Um, I think anxiety is a big one as well, that it's, it's been really neat to see how when we change the diet and kind of fix the gut, if you will, the anxiety starts to lessen kind of mm-hmm. naturally. And then also another big one for me, both personally and then with my, my patients, is the PMS. So PMS symptoms, when you really are eating the proper diet for you, you you just, just don't have PMS. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you just don't. So um, I think that's really the that's a cool one. That's a really neat thing to experience. Yeah. And with PMS is what kind of things are you seeing being effective for reducing those symptoms as far as food? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think the, I want to give you specific food items, but I think it's really a matter of changing the meal, the diet pattern. So unfortunately I don't think it boils down to any one food. I can say Almost all of my patients do consume seeds of some sort. Okay. We all hear about seeds, you know, so flax seeds, sesame seeds. I have a, a lot of people using tahini, which is ground sesame. I don't, I don't subscribe to the seed cycling. I'm um, just because for Interesting. Tell me more about that. Yeah, okay. Okay. So I have had patients do it and it works. I, I will say. However, when I went to start, you know, I was trying to find research on it and there is none. Number one. Um, but when you really start to learn about sesame and flax and just kind of the overall nutritional and, you know, kind of what we call functional, like a functional food, when you start learning about these foods, it just makes sense to eat them. And so what I have people do is just consume them without worrying about cycling. Mm-hmm. And it's still effective. Yeah, because so, that could become, you know, uh, kind of a part-time another- job. Yes, exactly. So sure, that's what I'm saying. So if I, I'm not going to do it, if I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to ask someone else. Yeah, I like that. That's my rule too. <laughs> that's definitely been my rule the whole time I've been a dietitian. If I don't yeah. like it, if it doesn't taste good, if not, I'm not going to be doing it, I'm not going to be recommending it. Exactly. Yes. So, but I think seeds themselves are really wonderful. Um, you know, they're just, it's something that I think we aren't, we don't naturally eat enough of, and they are really packed with minerals and also other compounds, again, lignans, for example, which can help with hormone balance. So I think the seeds are going to be one of the most probably important for women. And then just in terms of kind of, again, the overall meal pattern, if you will, consuming more plant foods. And what I like to say, I say this a few ways because I think eating plant foods just sounds really dull and people's eyes probably glaze over. But the way I like to say it is eat the rainbow. So really focus on the color of foods in the diet. I think it's easier that way to get in more fiber. And then also that really translates to fiber. So by eating more fiber, which we know studies have shown women with PCOS are not you know, even meeting the minimum amount of fiber in their diet. And then also studies have shown that women with PCOS have less or lower gut diversity, meaning um, when we talk about that ecosystem of microorganisms, 
we know that a more diverse ecosystem equals better gut health and better health in general. And women with PCOS have been shown to have a lower diversity. And so now we're starting to put all these pieces together of low diversity, poor gut health, not enough fiber, right? So just by simply changing the diet, tweaking it so that you are eating more plant foods and more fiber, I think that's going to be probably one of the, if you will, lowest hanging fruit to help women with PCOS start to improve on all of their symptoms across the board, quite honestly. Yeah. Yeah. You and I are definitely aligned on that. So I I definitely am happy that you're mentioning it because fiber is super important. Having that plant, that plant based, um, now that I think when we hear plant based, we think about being vegan, but Mm. it's really, you know, not what you're talking about. So I just want to clarify. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So when you're talking about plant based is prioritizing plant foods, right? So eating them in every meal, making sure that you're getting a a diverse kind of mix of different plant foods. Um, So it's not just fruits and vegetables. It could be things like legumes and like you mentioned, nuts and seeds and things like that. Um, So you and I are very much aligned on that. And I think that even though this information may not be as sexy as some of the stuff we see out there, um, it it's what works. And it's what exactly. we know is scientifically proven. And that's really the best approach for women with PCOS. There's so much conflicting information um, that, you know, go with credible sources and just kind of follow a proven path and you're, you're going to be successful. And I yes. think that's a message that is very important. Um, well, I want to thank you for being here. I think this was so helpful. You shared so much great information. Where can people find you and follow you and learn more about your services? I am at, so my website is stephaniepaverrd.com. And so that's my first name, last name, and my credential. And then my Instagram is at stephaniepaverrd. Um, What I want to do is encourage your followers, though, to go to my website, stephaniepaverrd.com, and download my the ultimate PCOS meal plan. It's a five-day meal plan. It has all the fiber you need. It is dairy-free and gluten-free, which we didn't get a lot into that um, specifically, but it's delicious. It's easy. And I think that your uh, listeners would love it. Awesome. So I will also link to that in my show notes so people can uh, find it there. And I'll definitely would love to have you back to talk more about all the things we didn't have the time to chat chat about today. But I want to thank you again. And I will hopefully continue to connect with you on Instagram. And I invite all my listeners to do the same. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Daphna, for having me. It was really fun chatting with you. And I will definitely see you around on Instagram. Sounds good. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the interview and I've found a lot of great insights, strategies, and information in what we discussed today. For more information, please visit the show notes below so you can get all the details, links, and recommendations that were discussed today. And if you like this podcast and what you've heard today, leave a review and subscribe to the show so you never miss when new episodes are out and you also help more people find this information. I'll be here again next week with a new episode. Until then, be well. Bye for now.